Welcome to LCS Talks. I'm Berkeley Glazer, and I'm the principal of Langley Christian Middle School, and my co-host is Kevin Merchandani. He is our director of instruction. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Berkeley. <laughs> We're here with John Roberto. He is the author of a recent book, Lifelong Faith, Formation of All Ages and Generations, and several other books on Christian formation. John has also founded several ministries and led projects on faith formation, including the Center for Ministry Development in 1978 and Lifelong Faith Associates in 2006. His graduate work was in the areas of religious education and sociology and brings that lens into his work. John's background is Roman Catholic, and he's coming to us from Connecticut. John is an incredible teacher, a researcher, and a writer that I came across this past year as I was engaging in some of my own learning with developmental theory, intergenerational and interdenominational Christian formation, and understanding educational communities. But what I love about John's work is how he has approached this important work of learning through a spirit of ecumenical collaboration between different Christian uh, denominations that I find to be quite compelling. This need is something that I think will encourage Christian unity and learning. And so, John, I think we shared with you that this season of our podcast on faith, identity, and Christian formation really is inspired by your work on lifelong faith, We want to be an ecumenical community that is transformed by faith-informed learning. So for our listeners, we're going to first hear a little bit about John's story. We'll then track through different developmental seasons in our lifespan development, and then we'll explore some insights concerning leadership for faith formation and considerations for leaders that might be helpful for us as we aim to create vibrant cultures of faith, teaching, and learning. All right. Well, um, yeah, we are really thrilled to talk with you, John Roberto, about faith formation across the generations. And uh, yeah, we offer you a warm welcome to LCS Talks. So, uh, John, if you could tell us first a little bit about you and your work and and what brought you into this interdenominational or ecumenical kind of strategic space to help the church think about its important efforts towards lifelong faith development. I, I began like lots of people did in youth ministry. Mm-hmm. Um uh, five decades ago, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, born and raised, and still Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working um, with uh, in Catholic diocese and with Catholic parishes. Um, and when you're in the youth ministry world, so many of the practices, approaches, and the rest really cut across all the the Christian churches. You know, mm-hmm. like there's a kind of a shared pool of what I call effective practices that everybody taps into. Yeah. They all bring their own theological perspectives to it. But, but like, it, like there's no surprises when you say, well, gee, you know that mission trip worked. Well, yeah, it worked because everybody's doing mission trips. You know, like that's a shared practice. Um, so that's where I started. And, and what I learned, what you, what you learn in youth ministry is you have to be kind of um, agile. <laughs> you got to think on your feet real quick. Um, and you also have to be very contextual. Um, you, teenagers change rapidly. The culture around them changes rapidly. Um, so you kind of learn how to be contextual and adaptive without it. Like when I started, I had no idea what those two words meant. Right. But mm-hmm. now I have, now I could say I was contextual and I was adaptive, you know, um, and the work in youth ministry got me. I always, I always approach young people in a broader context mm-hmm. in, in a sense that they're, 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 they're individuals growing and developing from, you know, 10, 11 years old to 20. Um, but, but they're also members of a family. Parents have a critical influence on that. They're members of a, of a church community, um, but they're members of also a society, a neighborhood that they grow up in. And so if you take that kind of broader community perspective on, on growth and development and on faith growth and development, 
then it was just for me, it was just growing into a, an emphasis on we had to work more with families because certainly in schools are also, I mean, in the same uh, you know, approach, when we're working with children and teens, we tend to work with them in peer or age group settings, mm-hmm. primarily mm-hmm. at schools and churches. And we know so much of what goes on in terms of their families is, is, is really significant and predictive of what's going to happen in other settings. So I got, I got involved in family faith formation and family ministry, mm. which has been very significant in terms of working with parents, helping the family grow in faith, um, which then kind of kept on p- pushing me towards thinking about how do you bring the generations together, which got mm. me thinking about lifelong faith formation. So um, it's since like the mid-90s, I really have been focused on how do you think about faith formation from the youngest to the oldest over now 10 decades of life. Um, and I started, I, I've always worked ecumenically in the sense of tapping into lots of sources. People who are formative for me mm-hmm. came from all different Christian sources. Um, and when I started doing a research project in the early 2000s with Raleigh Martinson and a whole team of people at Luther mm-hmm. Seminary in Minnesota, um, that was really the first time I really got a chance to dig into a big project across denominations. And, and for the last 20 something years, I've been working ecumenically, you know, across all the, you know, the different Christian churches, training resources. I did a journal on lifelong faith formation for eight mm-hmm. years, the books, mm-hmm. um, the lifelong faith team I work with represents a half dozen different denominations. So um, it has been a very rich experience, one I would never try. I mean, with just the best experiences working across churches and in faith formation, um, you just share a lot of common approaches, models, authors, you know, writers and the rest that, mm-hmm. that it's very easy to work across denominations, Christian denominations in the faith formation world. Um, every church has their own theological perspectives that they bring to it, but we just share so much in terms of models, approaches and practices. And we all share the same issues mm-hmm. that are going on in the culture and the society that we're trying to be responsive to. So. Um, working ecumenically and working, you know, across the churches has just been a blessing for me. And it's, I, I tell people, I wouldn't think of like, if I knew that earlier on, I would have started working more across denominations, but it was the right time. Mm. And I think for every church, it was a good time to think about the late nineties, early two thousands, because there was much more of a shared set of issues and, and challenges that we faced that we needed to really bring all our resources together around. So it's yeah. been very rich. That's a great way to introduce yourself and frame the issues mm-hmm. that we have here. We're actually, uh, I'd call us pretty interdenominational representative of over 110 uh, Christian churches. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that idea of creating unity or shared practices, a common understanding or common need. And for me, that uh, really brings the generations and the people um, in diverse communities together in a pretty compelling vision of, of the gospel for all nations and um, every tribe and every tongue as well, too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, John, I love your notion of faith formation and lifelong learning. It ties in really well with us as educators and in the field of education to be committed to lifelong learning. Uh, maybe if you could just maybe paint a uh, better picture for our listeners on the key theological landscape in this area. The, I think that the key insights around a lifelong learning and faith formation um, is, is this transformation from churches and denominations that have been primarily child and youth centered to realize that faith grows and matures and develops over the entire life cycle. Right. And as foundational as the first two decades are, and we can talk more about that because there's this, the, the first two decades put people on a trajectory towards lifelong growth mm. or not, you mm, know, so yeah. it goes both ways, right? But 
what, what we continue to see is the, the, the way in which faith matures over the generations and the richness in the generation sharing their faith stories, their beliefs, their journeys. You know, like I always say, every young person needs an older person who can share his or her faith journey to say, this, this life with Christ, this life in walking with God, it made me who I am. I can't imagine my life without my commute, my faith community and without my relationship with God. Young people need more of those kind of, and those people are 60s and their 70s and their 80s, and they have rich stories. They've been around mm. the block a couple of times, you know, they, they, and, but they have that to share. And they, in turn, need to be enriched by the, by the faith and spirituality and the life of the younger generations, yeah. you know. So I, I think the richness of our churches is enhanced when we bring the generation together mm-hmm. to grow in faith, celebrate faith, pray together, serve together. Um, and sometimes young people take the lead, like in social justice, for example. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the older people take the lead, like helping them in prayer and spiritual and spiritual growth. So w- when we're thinking about lifelong learning, the grounding is God's never done with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you, I, I always, I always say to people say, well, why should you do lifelong learning? I said, well, at what point in the gospel do the disciples become equivalent to the master? I said, we're always followers, you know, so that's the nature of the disciple. You're learning for a lifetime. So discipleship is a lifetime enterprise. And that's, that's a hard concept to bring into practice, which is where I spent all my time is how do you translate this concept that, that faith growth is a, is a lifelong process. We mature and grow in faith and the ups and downs of our journeys that, how do you put that into practice so that people can see it's it's really about 10 decades of life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's how how we walk with god over those 10 decades of life and how we mature over those 10 decades of life yeah. um I, we we've assumed I, I think in the past i'll go back 30 to 40 years um we've assumed we assumed kind of kind of built in lifelong growth in faith today we have to be very intentional about it mm-hmm. there's just the diversity and the pluralism in society that our community need to be strong, have a clear identity um, for us to foster it across the lifespan. And it's a huge task. Whenever I do workshops with churches, people say, you mean I, we're talking about zero to a hundred? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what we're talking about. But then, and it's important for churches and important for schools to always c- contextualize what they do in terms of the broader lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just it just says you know our walk with God is a walk from the youngest and to the oldest, um, and we and we have so much to learn and share with each other. And that's the other piece. It's not just walking individually; we walk with it as a community. Mm-hmm. And so we're sharing our faith and our journey mm-hmm. together. Um, and it's it's I just think it's critically important. And it's we used to assume it because the culture supported kind of you know the christian identity Mm. you can't assume it anymore you have to actually go create it to help people grow right yeah i love that big vision of uh, not only working with the generations but uh, one of my professors kevin lawson would say that we need to learn from to with and by each of the generations and that's children um, teaching the older generations and and learning alongside and developing programs and opportunities and what i love about uh, your writing john is just the real practical guide that you give us in terms of the, the pathways and the steps and the practices that we can lean into 
as uh, communities. And so um, I, one of the things actually, as I look at um, your lifelong uh, faith book in particular, I love that image of the salt, fat, acid, heat, um, those elements that were <laughs> it were involving um, in, in producing food, right? Like it, I think even, uh, I'm sure my wife would really appreciate me understanding a theory of, uh, of cuisine, <laughs> but uh, I think of the amazing complexity that we have in our genetics uh, for LELs and, and Berkeley probably with your, your biology background um, knows a lot about that. That's, that's yielded this amazing human diversity. So um, let's, let's look a little bit uh, for a moment in um, lifelong faith and, and consider some of these different elements. But um, our school is uh, a Christian learning community. We've got programs from K to 12. Um, what sort of encouragement would you have for us to see the seasoning and the flavors of these different ingredients in our school community in particular as we work towards lifelong faith formation? The, the, I, I have an opportunity to work with schools over the last 20, 25 years in, you know, in terms of the kind of their you know, religious and spiritual life. I think the most important insight about, about schools would be this kind of a similar insight I would make about, about children and youth programs in a, in a church is that we always have to fit and we have, our vision always has to be that our children and teens fit into the entire cycle of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm always, I'm always kind of, you know, impressing about people to, to think about, don't think just about the child, think about how the child is going to be growing into a teenager and those teenagers are going to grow into young adults. Mm-hmm. And, and always take that broader perspective of the whole lifespan. I think the second thing is to take the perspective that those children and teens are growing up in a family. And so how do we engage the family, engage parents mm-hmm. who are kind of you know critical factor, I think, in, in religious and spiritual growth. Um, and then to think about the school community as, as, a, as kind of a, describe it, a culture of faith forming. Mm-hmm. Um, these people always people ask, well, what are the two or three things we could do that will make a huge difference in the lives of kids? I think, you know, the most important thing you do is what you do every single day to build an environment, mm-hmm. a culture in which faith is shared and formed in the fabric of life. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there are high points. There's a retreat experience or there's a, you know, but the every day, what, what I found is I work with, I, I, I have a chance to I work for two decades with the Christian Brothers Catholic Schools in the, in the States. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing that I found more important than anything else was, yes, there are the events and programs and activities, but it's the relational character of the school, the community, the way in which teachers are just interacting as people of faith with their students, mm. uh, that students can turn to anybody in the school and find a, a faith role model. Uh, find somebody who will listen to them, share their story with them. And so a lot a lot of what I think we need to do in those first two decades of life is kind of create this culture, this environment in which you can live, you can understand your faith, come to knowledge of it, but practice that faith in a safe environment. Um, so I, th- I, I think a lot of times we have children and teens who know a lot about, but not so much about how to live it. So we have, I kind of, I kind of say, we, they have a lot of know what knowledge. They need some know how knowledge. Mm. And so schools are the perfect laboratory in a sense, mm. environment in which you can live, practice these things out. Um, so w- when I look at a school, I think about the cultural dimension of it. I think about the relational dimension of it. I think about the program dimension, but the programs kind of 
exist in the soup, if you will, of the culture. So that's why they work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of the everyday interactions that go on, whether it's in specifically religious or religion classes or in the interaction with in the activities, all those things day by day build a culture. Um, and I've watched schools, and it, you know, building a culture takes years. Um, but once you've built it, it, it's like the the faith is just embedded everywhere. Mm -hmm. The emphasis on spiritual growth and spiritual life and modeling that is embedded everywhere. Um, that's why I think schools can be so powerful. You know, you, you take that 35, 40 hours a week and you really maximize the cultural impact you can have in terms of, of a young person's faith life. And they get the chance to practice it right in front of you. So that yeah. sense of agency in their life, they get a chance to live it out and mm. perform it and practice it, which I think is just critical, um, especially with Gen Z kids and alpha generation kids. If they're not doing something with it, then it's not real. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think you probably, you see that every day, I'm sure it, but schools can, schools can make a huge difference. Now, if you, and if you take the school community and you put it together with school, thinking about the family community mm -hmm. and how we help families practice. Mm -hmm. Now you've got uh, that. Now you've got the alignment that you want to be working with because now you're working with parents and helping them grow in faith, share the faith, practice their faith, help the family strengthen their faith. So the families align with what the school's purposes are. In the first two decades of life, it doesn't get any better than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I heard a great image from uh, Dr. Lynn Swanner of ACSI, and she said, uh, we we need a bigger vision and not just a three-legged stool. We need actually more like something like a table where you now have invited the community to yeah. be a part of it too. So I, I love that image that you've left us with here of thinking about that relationship between the family and the wider community as well too. Yeah, I actually have a question around that. Um, I love, John, how you've broken up the formation and lifelong learning to decades and, and honing in on that first two decades, uh, especially for us, because that's where we're at and very much so. Uh, that's our ideal is what you just said, is to be able to uh, incorporate faith formation and allowing our kids to practice that each and every day. Uh, we probably fall a little short of that, but it's certainly our goal to try to establish that. I th think two takeaways right away that I've gotten from just listening to you. And the first thing is that mentor-mentee relationship of youth to older um, people in the faith. And, uh, and then just practicing that every day. So I'm wondering if just, here's my question around parents, to our parents now who are listening. Um, how can we encourage uh, them to look uh, for this mentor-mentee relationship for their children, like not, not maybe to them, but to someone else. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things we know from research, and so when I, when I started in youth ministry 100 years ago, um, one of the most influential works was a book called Five Cries of Youth that Dr. Merton Strauman of the Search Institute oh, yeah. uh, in Minnesota mm -hmm. uh, wrote. And it, it, he was the founder of the Search Institute. Mm -hmm. and, and Merton was a great researcher. And this was really one of the first, I'll call it contemporary social science approaches to understanding young people's faith. And the fifth cry was the cry of the joyous. And about these, he, he had, you know, interviews with hundreds and hundreds of kids. And there were 7,000 kids in the survey. And one of the common factors he found among almost all the kids who were the cry of the joyous was that they had five or more adult adults in their congregation that knew them by name. Mm. They knew them by name. They had a relationship with them. And that's outside their family. So mm -hmm. moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. It was that knew them by name and were available to them. Mm. That finding has come back at least five or six mm. different studies, exactly the same finding. Yeah. Um, 
Josh Packard uh, and the Springtide Research Institute here in the States, um, their 2020 survey was about belonging. This is a national survey of, of young people, 13 to 25. The most fascinating thing about that survey was they found statistical differences between young people who had three or fewer significant adult relationships and those who had three or more. Mm. And after five or more, there's a significant bump up in all the positive mm. youth development indicators. So I'm so so I always come back to that insight that schools do that. And if we can help parents, mm-hmm. and this, this is where schools and activities and churches all come in. Parents are kind of the managers of the religious experience and relationships of their kids. I know manager is a funny word mm-hmm. to use, but they're or the coordinator of it, yeah. right? Because the more of those significant adults in their kids' lives, the better. And the more of those adults who want to engage with their kids and, 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 and help kind of equip those kids with a sense of agency and purpose that they can contribute things, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I, I always think about the role that parents play, and parents are critical. They're sharing faith, the way they parent, their warm parenting style. Yeah. We, can, we can equip them and support them and encourage them to do those things. The more of those things that happen at home, the better all the outcomes are. And the more that parents are encouraged to connect with other families, other adults of other generations for their kids, the better the kids mm. are. And that's positive youth development, but it's also positive faith growth. Right. Um, and so I always tell congregations, your biggest asset are not your programs and building, it's your people. Yeah, yeah. It's your people. It's the people mentoring each other. It's your people supporting, encouraging other. It's your people practicing, praying, serving, learning together, eating together. You know, <laughs> if that's your greatest asset. Yeah. And people look at you sometimes and they just think, uh, yeah, sure. You know, like, but it's, but it's true. I mean, yeah. all the research points to the same reality. You know, that's what, that's what makes it work. And so I, we, we talk about how to align our effort to help the family be strong families, not to get them out to do what we want them to do for us to help them do what they need to do in terms of parent relationship, faith practices at home, all the things that make a significant difference. And how the school can support that and how the church can be the other part of this kind of triangle, if mm, you will, mm-hmm. you get those three working together. Then you, then you're, then you're building that, that foundation in those first two decades of life. That's just critical. Yeah. When Christian Smith was, was researching young adults, emerging adults, twenties, early twenties, and he went for the highly religious group. I, I, I thought, you know, why wow, that wasn't, that, that, that was a hard work to find a highly religious yeah. group. Yeah. But he, but he did interviews with them and as well as surveys out of his big youth, his big sample of the Youth and Religion Project. Mm-hmm. He asked them to look back and he asked them to, to identify the significant factors that helped that help make them highly religious emerging adults. Um, and it's all the things we've just been talking about. There were practices, reading the Bible, praying, uh, mentoring, strong family, parents modeling their faith, you know, my family practicing their faith, including grandma and grandpa. And their, it was all things we're just talking about. So it's not, I always tell people, this is kind of the bread and butter. This is kind of the nuts and bolts of, of faith growth. And it's not technical. It, it's just foundational. But if you can do the basics really, really well, you put people on a trajectory towards practicing their faith and emerging adulthood. 
That's beautiful. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I maybe stole your question, but no, that was uh, that was great. I think that's a, a great way to help encourage our parents in our uh, wider community. What, what I as you're talking about Christian Smith's uh, study, I was thinking about how important it is to transition through those developmental phases with um, with people, children, um, youth. Um, even into uh, new roles. We've got new teachers working here. That mentorship piece is really important as well. Um, would love to even just look um, at something even more specific here. Um, John, any encouragement with uh, our Bible courses, with chapels, the the kind of activity in life that happens in our school community? What have you found from working in the, the Catholic schools or um, yeah. working in particular in those kind of learning communities? Connect them. Mm. <laughs> That's, I mean, that, so the, the simplest message I could say is when I'm when I'm with schools and I see them connecting the retreat experience to classroom experiences, mm. the service engagement with reflection on the service. Mm. Like when, when when these things start getting connected, so they reinforce each other. Mm. Then you're then you're then you're starting to get, well, for lack of a better word, the attention of teenagers. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the teenagers for a minute. Yeah. But you get their attention, whether middle school or high school, um, because now they're, they're hearing a similar message and you're going deeper. So a lot of times what we want to do is we want to do more things. And I think well-chosen things deeper is a better is a better choice because everybody's got a limited bandwidth. I mean, I mean, schools have bigger bandwidth than churches do, but it's still limited. I mean, you can only do so much. Mm-hmm. Um so the, the the chapel experiences are worship experiences connected to retreat experiences mm. connected to small group experiences connected to service engagement like all those things connected as a whole and and being very conscious how these things connect um what i really encourage um, churches uh, as well as schools to do is to focus on the outcomes that they're looking for not the programs mm. in other words the, the Jesuits in the United States did a project, and this goes back, golly, almost 50 years, 45 years. They they really wanted to think about the graduates of a Jesuit high school at 12th grade, so at, mm-hmm. at 18 years old. And it, what they wanted, what the question they asked is, what does a graduate of a Jesuit high school look like? Mm-hmm. What is and he? Mostly he. Sometimes it's he and she, but usually he. Mm-hmm. You know, what was he thinking? How's he acting? How's he feeling? What's his relationship like? So they went through this whole series and they developed the, a document called the Jesuit. Um, let's see. I want to get it right. The Jesuit, gra- uh, the Jesuit uh, student at graduation. Mm-hmm. And then they started at 18 and they looked back over the four or sometimes six years of their of the experience to say, how are we fostering these outcomes? Mm-hmm. So how does it, how does everything connect and how does it all help us to grow? And I think. When you take that kind of attitude and getting churches to do that is just like a monumental task because they just have a collection of programs going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you focus on the, the ways in which faith is maturing in a developmentally appropriate way in childhood or in adolescence, then you, then you have a common language for what you want to see happen in the life of the child or the life of the teenager or the life of a young adult, midlife adult, mature adult, older adult. So it's, it's 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 a goal-centered approach that's person-centered, um, and so I really encourage people whenever they ask me. I say I start with the goals, and then you can see the connection among the activities to see how they contribute to those goals, and you're going to see some overlap. Mm-hmm. Some activities address a couple of different goals, um, but the language becomes what do we want 
what's the best that we want for our for our children and teenagers as they grow as spiritual and faith-filled people? What, what does that look like? And then how do we foster that? Um, so my, my, my advice always is connect the activities so that they're mutually reinforcing um, and the high points of, of, of the student's life need to be processed in the everydayness of life, whether it's in their classes or small groups or whatever they experience or one-on-one or in peer groups, because the high points need to be connected to the regular points mm. of, of the day. Um, and that creates the culture. Yeah. And so the culture is made up of the, of the big events mm-hmm. and it's made up of the everyday events. Um, and those are really significant. I mean, I think when I look at the, at the, at the Christian brothers schools, the retreat experiences that the students have, um, the, the kind of the regular worship uh, that they have, um, the service that they do, um, when all those things fit together, it's very significant. That's really great uh, for our listeners. They're probably uh, some of them are probably familiar with our process that we went through this past year on our K to twelve Bible curriculum review, and we generated um, a list of of six uh, kind of Christian ways of being, or we call them our learner attributes. So um, yeah, it's great to hear another connection to uh, that process from the Jesuits. And uh, yeah, I think we'll kind of transition a little bit here to to look at supporting K-12 educational staff and um, what we can do to support and encourage faith formation. Um, I'd love to first uh, commend to our listeners your book on lifelong faith formation. I think it offers a number of different strategies and, and practices and, and ways of, of being that I find really compelling. Compelling. Um, but I would love for, for us to even just look at that, uh, look at our, our leaders in particular, John. So um, their tasks in particular with this responsibility for faith formation, um, what can we do to encourage and, and um, what, what would you leave us with in terms of um, any insights for leading faith formation in our respective communities? Yeah. I, so Again, that cultural view is that every every teacher, every adult in the community has a role. And it's not an additional role to being a teacher. Hmm. It, it, I'll call it an enhanced role. Um, what young people need is they need like a variety of people to surround them. Um, so for, for years and years and years, I used to do weekend retreats every weekend with teenagers. I mean, so um, and my goal was to make sure I assembled a team that was pretty diverse because I knew some of the kids would love talking to me and other kids would say, yeah, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to this person. So you have a, a, you have a variety. The beauty of a school is you have a variety of people and create. So teachers creating a safe space in which you can have religious and spiritual and life discussions mm-hmm. and that teachers feel uncomfortable and really in their own skin to say, there's a, a group, there's a group of, of teenagers in my school that, that are going to connect with me, with my life story, with where I've been, with how I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing and living out my, my faith and spirituality. Um, and, you, and the school just has to create a context to say, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's the expected level of performance from everybody, that, that teaching is a vocation and a calling. And we, we want you to be able to share your faith, your life story, and, invi- and invite young people in a safe space to share theirs and their journey. Uh, the more that that happens in a school, it, again, it contributes to the culture of faith that you're trying to create. Um, and every teacher can do that. So oftentimes teacher will say, oh, I can't, I can't take any more work. You know, you know how hard it is mm-hmm. to teach fill, fill whatever the discipline is, right? Mm-hmm. Because every discipline is hard to teach. Um, and I, I think, no, no, no. It's, 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 you know, yes, we want you to be the absolute best physics teacher and chemistry teacher in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. 
but there's a whole group of young people who are going to resonate with your life, your faith, your story, your spirituality. We just want you to feel comfortable, equipped, and and create environments mm-hmm. in which that conversation can happen because it's going to happen. So it's not like you got to do anything to foster it. It's going to happen. And if you can be involved in at least one or two faith activities that our school is doing, whether it's worship or retreat, then you get a little bit more of a formal role. Um, but but I think the schools, I mean, at least in my experience, and I think this is true in, in churches as well, young people just need some people who are not paid to, to do the religious thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, ah, oh, well, you're the religion teacher. You get paid to teach religion. Yeah. Right. Not much, but you get paid to teach religion, right? Uh, <laughs> But the chemistry teacher, you're, you're kind of caught, oh, or the art teacher or the English teacher, mm. you're kind of caught and say, oh, I'm having this really significant conversation and I didn't expect it. It was kind of like, wow, you know what this, so I just encourage teachers to to be available like that before, during and after school to be to have space where, where students can have that, that kind of sharing. It's not programmatic, it's highly relational, mm-hmm. but those things that make a significant difference. Um, you know, I, 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 whenever I talk to teachers about this, I'm always reminded of a quote that Henry Nowen had, oh golly, years and years and years ago. He's, he, was, he was at Notre Dame, he was teaching, and he was getting so frustrated by all the interruptions to his work. People would drop in his office, they hadn't read something he wrote. He was just so frustrated with it. And he, he brought it to prayer, he talked to people about it until one day he realized that his interruptions were his work. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I just... And so I share that with teachers and say, yeah, I know you have a subject you want to teach. You have a, you know, you have a schedule and all the rest, but sometimes the interruptions mm. is where God is at work and moving. Um, so I love it when students say, I prayed with this teacher. Well, I didn't expect that at all. You know, like, <laughs> no, you know, like, you know, I didn't realize that the, you know, that the blank blank teacher was, you know, I, I just think if I could make faculty feel comfortable in that role, which, which has to do maybe they, like, I love it when schools do a retreat just for faculty mm-hmm. and say, we're just going to attend to your spiritual life because that's going to, that's just going to rub off and it's going to, it's going to kind of, you know, uh, set the tone, set the table for other conversations. So it's, it's not the academic as important as that is, but it is the spiritual side, the vocation of the teacher that I think really shines through. And the more we can affirm and, and encourage that that in the everyday life that they do, they're just really significant in the lives of these kids. You know, we all know the line. I love this teacher, but I just cannot remember what he or she taught <laughs> in 10 or 20 years, right? But but that's but but that's the point, you know, like yes, they they're a better person because they took, you know, AP something or other. Um, but it's the teacher that they carry with them. Um, I just think that's really significant. And I think that every teacher can have that role. But, it, but in like, when I think about it, it my role and when I work with the school and the rest, I just want to encourage and support and, and help them create the environment where that kind of stuff can happen because that stuff is really important. Well, that's great. Uh, our listeners will probably be familiar with our K-12 Bible curriculum process. Um, what we haven't quite got to yet and a bit of the journey ahead is we're developing cross-curricular guidance. So I love that image of um, you show up in a chemistry class and you see the presence of faith in the teaching and learning and um, you show up in your humanities class and you're having these rich conversations about the human experience. And so we're really excited to build that with our staff as part two of our Bible curriculum development. And so, John, we probably have a number of K-12 Christian educational leaders tasked with the responsibility for leading faith formation initiatives in their diverse 
respective educational contexts, what encouragement would you have for them as they lead faith formation in their communities? I think the essentials of a learning community, like learning communities are horizontal, not vertical. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is everybody's a teacher and everybody's a learner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the beauty of that is, and, and, and schools can, you know, incorporate that and all students get a lot of sense of agency and, and obviously teachers as well. Um, but that the insight that everybody has something to teach somebody else, yeah, mm. the, the kindergartner, the first grader has something to teach their peers, you know, or maybe even us, you know, um, that when a learning community really works, it, it's really built on the premise that everybody has something to share. Everybody has something to teach. Everybody can learn from each other. That respect for each other, which really makes intergenerational community work, the respect mm-hmm. for the for each person and their differences and uniqueness. Um, it for, for me, for a vital community as we share a common faith in Jesus Christ, obviously. Um, and we all we all appropriate that faith and live that faith. How do we share those stories? You know, how how do we share what how what, what God is doing in our everyday life? How do we pray with each other? And prayer can be led by anybody of any age. Um, you know, I was just used to say, like in Catholic parishes, some of the best masses were the ones that were in quotes, the children's mass. Well, mm. it wasn't just children. It was all, everybody was there, but because the young people were doing something as part of the liturgy, it just drew everybody in. Mm. And I'm thinking that's agency. That's a learning community. That's young people taking, taking a role in, in our community life. I think schools can, can model that. So I think, the, the schools that kind of have a way to blend what I'll call vertical relationships with horizontal relationships are the ones that really work. Um, and when young people have a sense of agency in their schools, that they have something to share and to teach and to, to create and to express, as does the adult community, then you've got a real winning formula because then it's a safe environment. You feel trusted. You feel valued for who you are. Um and even the first grader has something to teach everybody and we should let them teach, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just very different. Like when I went to school, no, your job was just to sit there <laughs> and as quiet as you could be, that's how good a student you were. Right. Right. That, it's a terrible model. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it was a terrible model when I went to school a hundred years ago. It's a terrible model. Why? Because people need to, ex- to have a sense of agency and express what they're learning and share with others. And in that practice and performing their learning and their faith, they can get feedback they can learn from others and engages them and builds investment. So learning communities are people where that, that's engagement, but they're also highly invested and have an ownership for it. When, when schools turn into really learning communities, both vertical and horizontal, oh my goodness, you know, that's then, then you're going to see all kinds of great outcomes, you know, um, then you see people smiling when they're coming to school, not yeah. just smiling when they leave school. Like yeah. I had a good friend used to say, the quality of what you do is not measured by how people are smiling when they leave because who knows, they're just glad they're out. Right, right. They're smiling when they come and they're excited about coming. And I just think that's really possible by seeing it. So yeah. um, I think that's the nature of a learning community. It's not take away from a teacher-student dynamic that's part of it, but it is to balance that with a more horizontal, everybody's a teacher, everybody's a learner. One of the things that, that I've been saying a lot recently is that um, we, we went through an era where we try to seize upon the right program or activity that would promote faith growth. Mm-hmm. And nothing wrong with programs, activities, textbooks, the rest. But the, the, the issues that we confront today as societies, 
in this U.S. and Canada shared kind of so many common contextual mm -hmm. factors. It really needs systemic approaches. And, and so when you look at a school, you're able to say, systemically, how do we nurture growth in faith and spirituality in these first two decades to get them ready for life? Mm -hmm. And you have to bring all these variables together. When you're working with the family, you're trying to address the systemic issues of helping families, and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts feel comfortable with their faith, grow in their faith and confident they can share that faith. And so the era of we're going to purchase a solution or the, the newest you know thing that just came out, mm. those days are over because the issues that we confront in terms of sharing you know, and growing in faith in the Christian faith in a culture that no longer really you know supports or resonates with that is really significant. And so we need a systemic approach if we're going to help nurture faith. Mm. And, and we have to remember that when they graduate high school, they're still growing. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. like Robert Wuthnell at Princeton, the great Princeton sociologist said, don't remove the scaffolding that promotes growth too quickly and too soon. That in their 20s, they still need all those support systems to keep on growing in faith. Mm. So um, it, it's a, I, I just think we need systemic approaches that's what you're doing in a school. That's what you're doing with families. That's when you engage the, con the churches and congregations around this. When you take a systemic approach, that's the only way to really make faith transmission, faith growth be lifelong. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no program that will do it. It's mm -hmm. communities that do it. It's, it's, and it's relationships that do it, but it's systemic. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. So great. Uh, we want to thank our listeners for uh, tuning in today. And just remember, you can reach out to us at podcasts at langleychristian.com if you have any questions. And uh, yeah, we just love uh, interacting. And thanks, John. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.